This morning, we are in part four of a series that we're calling Your New Default. What we're trying to drill down on now is to kind of help us identify and maybe even change some of our defaults. So what do we mean by that? Well, as we said a few weeks ago in part one, we said we all have a default. And for most of us, the default is a reaction to something. And you and I have a default reaction to almost everything. And our default is rarely awesome. That's the premise of what this whole series. So we started the series in part one uh, a few weeks ago talking about the default that a lot of us have towards judgment. And we acknowledge that we are accomplished judgers. Church people just are. We're, we're experts at this. So we took some time looking at why judgment is a bad idea. And the whole idea behind Jesus' teaching on judgment is that we're not in a place to judge. Now, discernment is a little bit different, and we're called to that. And that's what makes this a little bit challenging. And, and that's where the tension comes from, right? But we're not in a place to judge. Only God is in a place to judge. Then in part two, we talked about our default of distrust and suspicion. We talked about what it would take to move from a place of suspicion to a place of trust. And we talked about our tendency to fill in gaps in information with suspicion rather than trust. That's the default. So we came away asking, what would it look like to start filling gaps in information with the most generous explanation possible? Like, what if we decided that even though we don't always know what's going on with the people in our lives, there must be a perfectly good explanation? And that was a hard teaching for some of us. Last time we talked about anger, our default to anger. And we said that anger says, you owe me. So we asked these questions, who owes me and why do they owe me? And we talked about the process of moving from a default of anger to a default of gratitude. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 said that if anyone's in Christ, if anyone has devoted their life to Jesus, then they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And maybe you've been a Christian for months, for years, for decades. Maybe you're like, and you're, so you're kind of like in this process and you're like, okay, so where, where is this new creation? Like, I'm still waiting for it. I'm still dealing with a lot of the old stuff. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And we're gonna, that's what we've been talking about. So regardless of where you're at spiritually, um, I know what you want. Because we all want the same thing. We want a new day. We all would welcome some better version of ourselves. So today, and this is so much more than self-help, so don't check me out yet, okay? Today... We're going to tackle another common and challenging default, and I'm just going to call it the default of blame. And I can promise you this, in my life, my default is it's not my fault. That's my default. You probably can't identify with that, so I'm just going to talk, I'm just going to read from my journal today, okay? So this is what we're waiting in, I know better, this is what we're waiting into today. We're waiting into blame because blame is so easy to assign. Blame is so easy. Some of you married a blamer, right? Don't look at them. No, it's like, no, I didn't do that, not my fault, nope. Some of you, you work with blamers every single day. Well, here's why the report isn't done, and here's why, oh my goodness, if we had a different boss, if we had a different principal, if we had a different administrator, if we had a different leader, if we had a different teacher, everything would be better. And so we spend our time assigning blame, because blame is so easy to assign, and responsibility is so difficult to assume. Isn't that true? 
blame is so easy to assign and responsibility is so difficult to assume. And a lot of us, and I don't know whether it's true of you, but a lot of us find ourselves saying this phrase over and over again, look, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And you know, the human mind and the human heart work together to create this like virtual factory of excuses, okay? And maybe you've come up with all kinds of excuses as to why it wasn't you. So I want to save you some time this week, uh, so maybe some, some of maybe where you have to work or whatever, you can write this. I'm going to save you some effort, okay? Whether it's workplace, at home, whatever, and I'm going to give you a list and you can write these down. It'll make next week easier for you. A whole list of excuses that you can use over the next seven days. Um, just a pick, you can take a picture of the screen once the list is complete and then you got your excuses. I'm not putting them on the screen for you. What are you talking about? <laughs> it wasn't me, it was traffic. Like, okay, we're not using that today, but a month ago we did. Oh my goodness, the summer traffic is now like September and October traffic. What is going on? When are these people going home? Hmm, right? It wasn't me, it was construction. Who knew there'd be construction? It wasn't me, my alarm didn't go off. It wasn't me, there was a misunderstanding. I didn't get the memo, I didn't get the email. It was my dog, he really did eat my homework. It was my ex. Oh my gosh, have you ever met my ex? Then you know. It was her. It was him. You know. It was my parents. I had such a tough childhood. You have no idea how bad my childhood was. It's my kids. Everything was great till we had kids. Then we just had to have one more, you know? So that's my problem. It's my... Wow, you were quick to identify with that. That's weird. Uh, future sermon. It's my... It's my work culture. It's so toxic. It's my boss. It's my crazy schedule. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time to even have lunch. It wasn't me. It wasn't my responsibility. It wasn't me. It just wasn't me. It's not. It's you. That's what we're saying. Ever play that game? You spend time with people who play that game? It's not me. Not my fault. It's you. Remember this when you were a little kid? If you grew up with siblings, you were so thankful because of the plausible deniability that siblings brought with them, right? wasn't me. It was my brother, my sister, right? If you're an only child, I don't know how you did it. Blame grandpa. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know how that works. But by the time we're done today, uh, not through my power for sure, but in, and certainly not because this teaching is going to change your life, but hopefully through the work of the Holy Spirit in all of us and the power of God at work in us, uh, I would love to be able to kind of cross off everything kind of on that list of excuses, to take away our excuses, just to set those aside and get to a different place where we're no longer defaulting to, look, 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 it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Not my fault we went bankrupt. I mean, it's the economy. Not my fault my marriage fell apart. I mean, you've met my ex. You know, not my fault. It's not my fault I flunked out of college. I picked the wrong school. Those professors hated me. We live in that space an awful lot of the time, and we have a word for it, and none of us wants to admit that we are this, but if this is the space that you live in, you know, you know what that makes you? What that makes me? It makes us irresponsible. It makes us irresponsible. Now, what's true is if you start to push back or you're already emailing me, you know, because this has already offended you, whatever, you're like, you don't understand. I have reasons. I, you, maybe you actually have a reason. You're not alone. We all have reasons. Maybe it was a tough childhood. Maybe your dad left. Maybe your mom died. Maybe people drank too much. Maybe somebody abused you. Maybe your workplace culture is toxic. Like, maybe it's not good. Maybe it's not healthy. 
Maybe you have a terrible boss. I get that. And maybe your marriage isn't great. You're like, I thought, you know, I was marrying this and I got that, you know? Or maybe your parenting is, is more overwhelming than you thought it would be. Look, we've, we've all got reasons, but listen, a reason isn't an excuse. What happens to a lot of us is we turn our reasons into excuses and we use our excuses as justification. I'm just, I'm just stuck at this dead end job. Nothing's going to change. And yes, I got the golden handcuffs on. You know, you should see my benefits. You know, I've worked hard for these. You should see my retirement plan. Only 17 years, four months, and six weeks left till I retire. It's great, but I hate my job. This is just where I am. Can't blame me for my attitude. We use things like that as a justification. We try to use the reason as a justification. You can do that, but here's where that leads. Justification like that always leads to stagnation. Justification through excuses, leads to stagnation because you're like, well, I wash my hands of that. She's just like that. That's just my husband. That's just my kids. That's just my job. That's just my industry. That's just the way it is. You talk to any person in my position, that's exactly the way it is. Uh, The way I hear it in the world I live in is that's just the way church is these days. Churches are all in decline. What can you expect? What are you going to do with these millennials? What are we going to do? You know what this means? That means there's no progress. We spent five weeks this summer talking about prayer. So if you pray, uh, you know what stagnation means for you. It, it, it means that your prayer life sounds like, you know, God, if you could just get me a new job. God, if you could just get me a new boss. God, if you could just get me more money. If you could get me a new boyfriend, new girlfriend. If you could get me this, if you could get me that, then I will. But until then, I'm stuck. It's like, God, I'm stuck. I'm not really going to do anything until you do something for me. So I'm stuck with him. I'm stuck with her. I'm stuck with them. I'm stuck with me the way I am. I'm stuck with this. I'm stuck with this credit card debt. I'm stuck with being overweight. I'm stuck in this job, I guess. I'm stuck with all this stuff. That's what we do when we develop justifications. We get to the point where we're like, well, it's not my fault, and I'm just not responsible for that, so nothing's going to change. Or we can use a reason, not as justification, but as an explanation And that could be helpful. Because you know what? In the summertime, in down east Maine, well, I should say in Ellsworth, on your way to Bar Harbor, there's traffic. There's traffic. Let's not use that. It's it's an explanation. It's helpful. It should remind us to plan to leave a little bit earlier because probably going to hit traffic. And then after most of the tourists leave, now all of a sudden, we're going to pave everything. So there's construction And we get that, and we complain that the roads are like they are, and then we complain that they're fixing them. Because I didn't think of this, I didn't use this excuse as an explanation, I used it as justification for me to be upset. Actually, my alarm didn't go off. What this means is maybe I should set a second alarm. I'm late again, like even on a Sunday, and I really know, you know, like, I know I don't ever know what they're talking about, because I never get there for the first part of it, so I have so far to drive, and the traffic, I mean, there's traffic, let's talk about the traffic, no, we've talked about the traffic, I always get behind someone driving 34 miles an hour, that again is a different sermon, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, and we talked about anger, but what that means is um, we should start maybe getting up earlier, right, it's an explanation, which should drive us to some different kind of behavior, Maybe I get up 15, if I'm consistently 15 minutes late, I get up 15 minutes earlier, and I leave 15 minutes earlier. Or, like your five-year-old, didn't pick up his laundry again, and never picks up his laundry, never throws it in the basket. He's five, you should see this coming. Use this as an explanation. You can say, you know what, my mom wasn't much of a mom. My dad wasn't much of a dad. 
But listen, if you're in this room, you're not eight. Maybe you're not even 28. Maybe you're 38, you're 48, whatever. That's the story of your past. It's your story, but it's the story of your past. So the question is, when is it going to stop being the story of your present? When are you going to say, okay, that's a reason? You know what? Maybe it didn't work out the way that you thought it would work out, but like, here I am. So this helps me understand. See, explanations can lead to progress. Explanations can lead you to moving forward. Explanations can take you to a new place. It's like, it's like I have an addictive personality. You know what? I do God. So what am I going to do about that? Because here's what's true. Wherever you're at spiritually, um, we're going to get to how Christianity makes this different. But wherever you're at spiritually, this is, this is what's true. That you can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both. You can keep making excuses. Oh my goodness, you should, if you knew my family, oh my goodness, you should see my boss. You should spend some time in my workplace. You should spend some time with my husband, my wife, my ex, my kids. You can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both. And the problem for a lot of people, and I don't know about you, but the problem for a lot of people is you're stuck. Think about this. Like nothing's better today than it was five years ago. Well, actually, maybe if it's different at all, you know what it is? It's, it's worse, maybe. Because time in and of itself doesn't actually make things better. So maybe it's worse than it was five years ago, and the gap between maybe the two of you is bigger. And the problem is more significant. And you've got more debt than you had five years ago. And you've got more to solve now because now you just use excuses, excuses, excuses. And you can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both. So why are you and I, why are we so resistant to responsibility? Why is it so easy to blame? Like, why are we blame shifters? Why are we blamers? You know what I've realized over time, and this is, this is really at the heart of it, that if you really peel the onion and you get to the heart of it, you're like, why am I this way? Why do I always want to blame my spouse? Why do I want to blame my parents? Why do I want to blame my kids? Why do I blame my boss or my coworkers or my church experience? Why do I blame God? Why do I blame? Here's something. The practice of blame signals the presence of shame. That's heavy, I'm sorry, but I just caught you like coming around the corner there, didn't even warn you on that one. The practice of blame signals the presence of shame. Like if you know, if you want to know like what's underneath and you're like, well, I'm ashamed of my financial situation. Like I know I should have saved. I, I shouldn't have bought that and I shouldn't have taken on that debt. And I know and I did and I, I'm, I'm irresponsible, okay? I know I shouldn't have said that, but I did. And you, we try to hide behind blame and we make up all these reasons and all these excuses, but you know what? if we're really being honest with ourselves, we get right down to the base level of it, you know what we're going to find is that we're ashamed. Like you're ashamed that you treated her that way. You're ashamed that you didn't follow through. You're ashamed that you haven't addressed that addiction. You're ashamed that you haven't addressed that self-destructive behavior. This is so deep-seated. 
the good news is the Bible talks about all this. In fact, some of you, you've tried to read your Bible, and you probably started at the beginning, which is where you start reading most books, and that works for a few chapters, but then you get into it, and you're like, what is going on? You know, like, what just happened here? What does this mean? I mean, I'm talking, you get three chapters in, four chapters in, and then it's like, what, what, just this took a weird, weird turn. And in those first few chapters, it's like really good stuff. And, and then it's, then you're like, I don't know what is going on. But what we see is the fundamental human problem. In the Garden of Eden, you see that all of a sudden they're, they realize they're naked and they're embarrassed and they're ashamed and shame entered the human race. And whenever you blame, shame is underneath that. Shame is always behind the practice of blame. So if you're a blamer, and we're all blamers to some extent, like the human mind just goes there. It's our human default condition. And the practice of blame signals the presence of shame. Now, just so you know, I know this has been heavy already, but this is going to get worse before it gets better. So just so you know, feel free to leave now if you, while you still have a chance, but while you have a good reason. Eventually, you and I are left with no excuses. So I want to peel back the curtain a little bit and just let you see into the future. I mean, how cool is that? You didn't know that was something you were going to get. To, you didn't know I could do that for you. Um, you didn't expect that today, but this is just another service that I provide at a ridiculously low price. Peek into your future. So there's a letter to a group of Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. We don't actually know who wrote this. Some think it was Paul. Some think it was Barnabas. Don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And I also don't know why we spend so much time debating it and researching it and trying to figure it out. The point of it is that it's a very powerful book. This is what it said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The writer says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. So, what is the word of God? Let's do a little Bible study here. What's this mean, the Word of God? The easy answer on its surface is the Scripture. It's the Bible. That's what you think of when you read this, the Word of God. You think that leather-bound book you're holding in your lap or the thing on your device or whatever. You, and that's true on the surface. The word, But listen, listen. The Word of God is far more than just the Scripture. And if that statement freaked you out, hang with me here. The elders are all staring daggers through me right now. Because here, stay with me. Theologically, the Word of God is more than the Scripture. The Word of God, according to Greek thought and the way it's described in the Bible, is actually, listen, Jesus. The Word of God in its purest sense is Jesus. The idea finds its root in John chapter 1. And here's the thing, the very basic tenet of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He's not in the tomb. He's alive and his spirit is with us. And because Jesus is alive, then this, this statement is true. The word of God is alive and powerful. So let's keep reading. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. So like we talk about scripture a lot here. It's, we use it for all of our messages here on Sundays. But I tell you, I've read my Bible like my entire life, like all the way back to my childhood and teen years. And there are times, as you know, when you read the Bible, that you're reading the Bible. And then there are times that it seems like the Bible is reading you. You've probably had that experience. You just kind of sit up and you're like, wow, I, I, I don't know what's going on, but God just showed me, God just like called my bluff. That just cut me to the heart. Some of you have had this experience in church, right? I mean, one of the more curious things about preaching 
Sometimes people will say to me, hey, do you remember when you said whatever? And I have a pretty good memory. Like I usually remember what I said, and I'm pretty sure I didn't say that. Actually, if you go to the, back to the podcast feed or the old CDs or even the old cassette tapes that we have in storage somewhere and play it back, you'll discover I didn't say that, but you heard something I didn't say. Like, what is that? Well, it's, it's one of a couple things. Your mind is wandering and you're, you know, you're scrolling Facebook while you're listening to me so you didn't hear what I actually said. Or sometimes that's God speaking to you. Sometimes that's the Holy Spirit giving you what you need to hear. Sometimes, you know, we might not even have like this particularly emotional service. And this has happened to some of you. But you're just sitting in church and all of a sudden you just start to cry. Or you're standing there during the music and you get very emotional. And you're like, I don't know what's going on. And guys, they're like, what is this moist residue coming from my eyeballs? And sometimes, sometimes, and all of a sudden you have to go take a phone call out in the parking lot, right? So sometimes it's the Holy Spirit at work speaking into our minds, speaking into our hearts, speaking into our souls, because this is real. The Word of God is alive. I'm telling you, one day though, all the excuses are gone. And the Word of God cuts deeply. And sometimes we get glimpses of that now where there's this astonishing reality sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword that cuts between soul and spirit. So I have a question, like where does your soul end and your spirit begin? I mean, I've heard all kinds of explanations like, well, the soul is the essence of you and your spirit is like your personality and your soul is eternal and your personality, that's nice and it's a pretty um, shallow explanation. Where's the dividing line between your soul, and your spirit? I don't know. God does. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, exposes your, our innermost thoughts and desires. So one of the hardest parts, I think, of being in Scripture, and then Scripture getting into you, is, that, is when my motives get revealed, right? There's a, there's a lot more self-centeredness and selfish ambition in here than I ever care to admit. So the Word of God And Jesus exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Verse 13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. But see, what do we do when we're ashamed? We hide. We hide behind all kinds of things, right? We hide behind our clothes. Does this make me look fat? Well, I don't know. Are you fat? I don't know. But we hide behind our... We hide behind our possessions. We hide behind our house, our cars, our lifestyle. We hide behind our job, our career, our position. We hide behind status. We hide behind our education. We hide behind our accomplishments. We hide behind our image on social media and because we are terrified of being seen for what and who we really are. Verse 13, everything is naked and exposed before his eyes and he's the one to whom we are accountable. Now, if you're really understanding that, if you're really being honest, this, would be, this should be terrifying. He's the one to whom we are accountable. So like regardless of what you believe about this life and the afterlife, if in your mind there's even a chance that the afterlife and all the things we talk about in the, kind of around the church about the afterlife, if there's a chance that it's true, then you should be scared, right? Because judge, come judgment day, the truth is like out there. And we're all accountable to God. Now, if that makes you go, well, I don't know what to do with that. You know, I didn't come here to get freaked out. I don't know what to say. Then thank God for these next verses. Because he could have left it right there. But he didn't. 
Now the writer of Hebrews gets to the Jesus part. And he says, this is true, but I want you to, I'm going to show you what's also true. Verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. So this is the book of Hebrews. It's written to Hebrews, the Jewish people. And he's saying, okay, you guys know the old approach to God, the old religion stuff, right? There was a temple, like we don't have temples today. Actually, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Like the Temple Mount and the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, that's what's left of the temple today. But back then there was this temple. There was a high priest in the Jewish faith. The high priest was elected or appointed every year. And every year he would go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was special. So you can imagine kind of, you've, maybe you've seen diagrams of this or whatever, but imagine the layout. There's the outer court. And then there's this inner room, the holy place. Then, the, and that was kind of in the middle but then in the holy place, there's, a hidden, there's an inner room behind the inner room, and that was the holy of holies. And the high priest, only one human being, was allowed in there once a year. So what was in there? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was in there. What's in that? Well, if you saw that movie, you would know. And so the, it's Mo, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple was Moses' staff or Aaron's staff, depending on which tradition you accept, and the ten, what was left of the Ten Commandments. That was it. The Ark of the Covenant was where the Jews believed the presence of God was, okay? This is different from what we've ever, anything we've ever experienced. It wasn't just a symbol of God's presence. They believed it was God's presence, that the presence of God was not just symbolized by the Ark, but this is where God dwelt. They got a little off on that theology. They took this so seriously that once a day on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood of animals and offer incense at the Ark of the Covenant, they literally tied a rope around the high priest's foot so that if he died in there, or if he struck dead in front of the presence of the living God, they could just pull his body out because they wouldn't go in there. But the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and stand in the presence of God. So now they're like, well, we don't have that high priest anymore. We have Jesus. He's our high priest. Verse 15, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he didn't sin. So one of the reasons we hide, one of the reasons you're, we, we, we tend to be ashamed, one of the reasons that we don't want to tell the truth about ourselves you know, at home or the truth about ourselves at work, we just kind of we play this game, we make up excuses, and we blame. The reason we do this is because we're afraid of being judged. Like we're afraid if people were to know the truth, so we hide and we're ashamed. So then you come before God who sees us more accurately than we see ourselves, and he's like, I know. I know. What you just told me didn't surprise me. I know. And I, oh, hey, I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to be alone. I know what it's like to be misunderstood. I know what it's like to be beaten and tortured, and sold out by your friends. I get it. You know what we call that? That's empathy. So you actually come before God, and while He could judge you, because He has the right, He has the power, He has the position, but instead, in His presence, we experience not just truth, but truth and grace. And He says, like, I get it. I know. I faced all the same stuff, all the same temptation. So we have a God who has empathy, and as a result, verse 16, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, so you can like, go to God with your stuff. And the reason you can assume responsibility and stop assigning blame and stop hiding and being lost in your shame is because God gets it. Like Jesus gets it. It says, there we'll receive his mercy 
and will find grace to help us when we need it most. Listen, this was so unexpected to the readers of this letter. This was not what they were expecting. And it's still surprising to a lot of us. Remember in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember when the Nazis, because it was historically accurate and all that, but remember when the Nazis found the ark while Indy was telling Marion not to look? Like, don't look, don't look at the ark. Remember the scene? You remember? You know where I'm going, right? And then, and, but what'd they do? What'd they, what'd they do while they weren't looking, while Indy and Marion weren't looking? What were the Nazis doing? They opened the ark. And what happened? Their faces did what? Melted off. If you're like under 35, you're like, oh, that's cool. And that's not nearly as cool. It's like 1981 special effects, okay? It's not that great. But very powerful scene. <laughs> but listen, here's my point. That's what people usually expect to find when they encounter God. Maybe that's what you think you're going to find if you come to God as you actually are. Then maybe that's why you keep your distance from God. Listen. You've got to meet Jesus. You've got you to have some time with Jesus because he's saying to you, you know that sin that you're hiding from, from me? That thing that you did at work? That thing that you did when you were younger? That thing you did that you hope no one ever finds out about? I took care of that. Amen. I know about it. It's done. So let's come on. Let's, it's safe here. So, question. It's a long question, but it's an important question. Question for you. If you knew ahead of time that when you did something wrong, you would be forgiven, not judged, and fully accepted, how would that impact you? If you knew ahead of time that when you did something wrong, you'd be forgiven, not judged, and fully accepted, how would that impact you? See, as Christians, we don't model this like we should. Like the church should be the most accepting place that anyone ever experiences. This would be the most accepting place for sinners because I'm one and you are. We should model this because that's a much better way to live than leaning into blame. So here's the better way. Because of God's mercy and only because of that, we start assuming responsibility and stop assigning blame. Decide you're not going to be the person who's like, you know, I know what you think, but it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was my boss. It was my upbringing. It was my father. It's my gene pool. It's the way I'm predisposed. It's my addiction. It's just the way I'm wired. We start assuming responsibility and stop assigning blame. It's like, ah, I was late. I should, have, I should have known better. I didn't have it done on time. I'm sorry. That was actually me. That was me. Like, I broke that. Like, I scratched the car. Like, I spent that money. Yep, that's my search history. That's me, you know. I'm responsible. I did it. Could you imagine what would happen in our culture? What would happen in our family culture? In your work culture? Wherever there's blame, there's shame, and we're hiding. So what if we began to behave responsibly? Like, what if our new default is we got rid of that long list? That, you know, no, it's not my fault, it's the economy. It's my ex, it's him, it's her. Rick Warren says, he says, but you are the common denominator in your life. 
You're the only, this is Rick Warren's words, not mine, so just you know, write a letter to him. You're the only one who's been in every job you've ever held, every relationship you've ever been in, every friendship you've ever been in, every credit transaction in your financial life. That was you. How can, he says, how can you be 0% responsible? Easy for you to say, Rick, you're not here. But anyway, do you know what a responsible person says? Here's the part I own. Maybe it's even 100%. Yep, that was me. I did that. I said those things. I did those things. It was me. And you're like, well, what about a situation like at work where it's not me? Or my family where it's like all mixed up and there's all this blame to go around. Like, so like, like then here's what you do. I think you look at a piece of the pie that you can own. It's like, okay, these people had a role, but like, like what about you? Like, okay, I, I was responsible for that. Let's start there because we've got to take some responsibility. Sometimes, sometimes you have to take responsibility for things we didn't do, then sort it out later. But we've got to get to the place, and it, it, it's so hard when we're assigning, assigning blame, but we've got to get to this place. So let's, let's think about this for a minute. You already love people who assume responsibility. They're some of your favorite people. You love it. Like, you've got three kids. Two are irresponsible. One's responsible. Which one do you love the most? Yeah, I'm joking. I'm kidding. You can say it. They're in the other room. You can say which one. It's okay. No, I just actually just wanted to see if you're still awake. Don't do that at all. Um, <laughs> like, what happens at work when someone responsible gets hired? They get a raise. They get a promoted, right? That's what happens when people with people who are responsible are like, not me. That's what we're talking about. But we love them. You can't hire enough of them. You think they're amazing. You want responsible people as family. You want them as friends. You want those people working on your projects. You all Because you, we already love people who assume responsibility. And, and sometimes it's hard. But listen, we have to res- assume responsibility. Let's be those people. And you know, as a Jesus follower, like if you're a follower of Jesus, there's zero reason that you shouldn't be the one to assume responsibility. Because like you already know where you stand with God. Like you're forgiven. So let's get honest with ourselves. And, and let's say like, I got I to gotta, I gotta take my life in the kingdom of God seriously. Like, can you imagine what would happen if we started taking responsibility consistently? Like imagine all the fights that wouldn't happen at home if your default was, yeah, I know I did that. I said that. I said that that way. I'm responsible. I'm sorry. I own that. Imagine what might happen at work, and you're like, yeah, but my work culture is so toxic. Well, well here's what, maybe, maybe, maybe you can start to actually affect change in that culture by taking responsibility, or maybe you eventually go get a new job where they will promote you, and they'll give you a raise because people love people who take responsibility. Then imagine what might happen if you look in the mirror, because this is where the battle is won and lost. And for a lot of us, we've lost self-respect. We're like, I, I think I'm fooling them. I, th- I think I'm pulling this off. I think I'm fooling them. But at the end of the day, you look at yourself and you know you're not telling the truth. You know your life isn't telling the truth. So listen, if you're a Christian, you have a God who loves you. 
You have a God who's embraced you, a God who knows the truth about you better than you know about yourself. You've got zero reason not to embrace the truth and assume responsibility. And the good news is, as is true with all these things we've been talking about in this series, divine intervention is available to you. That's the good news. You're like, this seems impossible, okay? Because like we started with judgment, and now I've got to show grace, and then we talked about suspicion, and I just got to learn to be more trusting, and you hammered on us about anger, and now I've got to show gratitude, and now this, like this is impossible. Yeah, I know. So just like everything else we've talked about, when it comes to resetting our, desi- our defaults, the Apostle Paul calls it renewing of the mind. This is going to need the Holy Spirit at work in your life. This is going to be the regenerating work of God at work in your life to bring about the kind of sanctification, this process of becoming more holy. But hey, listen, God doesn't do this on his own. He does it in cooperation with us. Now, I know this is a tough journey, okay? And for some of you, you're going to be able to go from here and put some of this right into practice right away because you've done enough work on yourself in recent years, like you're self-aware enough, you've been in process. This is just going to kind of keep pushing you forward. But for some of you, it's like, I don't know, I don't, I don't even know where to start. I got to unpack some stuff. I don't, know, I don't know what to do with this. Maybe you need to spend some time uh, talking about this in your small group, talking about it with a friend or a mentor over a coffee. Uh, maybe you need to sit down with a counselor. I can recommend a couple of Christian counselors. I encourage you to do that because we got to figure this stuff out so that our past stops ruining our present and our future. And when you start to address issues like suspicion and anger and blame and, and blame that's driven by shame, and you get to the place where you're like, you know what? Not only does nobody owe me anything, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, but it's not someone else's fault. Like where I'm responsible, I'm going to take responsibility. And where it is someone else's fault, listen to this, like where you are the victim of someone else's destructive behavior, there's no need to carry that shame around anymore. That's not doing you any good. In fact, it's holding you back from everything God wants you to experience. So my prayer today is that this would be the beginning of a new chapter in your life, a new day in the way that you see yourself, a new day in the way that you see your relationships, a new day in your relationship with God and the way that you see Him. So yes, thanks to God's mercy, we can start assuming responsibility and stop assigning blame. The band is going to come to the stage, the band and singers, and I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a couple songs, and then we're going to take a few minutes to process a little bit of what you've heard this morning and what the Holy Spirit might be showing you right now, because I don't want us to miss this moment. God has us here for a reason, so let's not rush past this. So let the, let's let the words of a couple of familiar songs speak to you, maybe in a fresh way, and then we're going to spend some time in prayer. Let's pray together right now. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, by, by nature, I'm a blamer. That's my default. It's never me. (laughs) But it is me. Oh, I've held others responsible for things that, if I'm being honest, I'm the one not being responsible. And I'm certain I'm not alone in this. So I pray for everybody in this room who's struggling with blame. I pray for people who are struggling with taking responsibility. I pray that we would all come to the realization that little things become big things. Nothing becomes something And often the people that we say we love the most are the ones who are paying the most for our unresolved blame. I pray for those in this room and those who have been watching online who have truly been victims of destructive behavior of others. Sometimes of those who should have been the ones protecting them from this very thing. Because Satan is such an effective liar 
and deceiver and accuser. Maybe they've actually carried the shame of that around with them, maybe for years. And that shame has caused them to place blame to the point that their default is to place blame in all other areas of their lives. So I pray this morning that you would begin to bring healing and freedom from shame, from blame, from the fear of confronting these things in our lives. God, we are convinced you haven't called us to live in shame or to place blame or to live in bondage to fear. So I pray that you would continue to work on our lives, continue this process of renewing our minds, of resetting our defaults so that we would experience the purpose and the meaning and the freedom that you've made possible for us to live in. And we want to live lives that express, consistently express our gratitude that you continue to love us back into relationship with you. This is the gospel of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.